Thank you, Joe. Worship team, good morning again. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. Today we're going to be looking at 11, verses 11 through, well, 11 through 17, but honesty and advertising here, 11 through 14, okay? So we're going to, this is a two-parter. Because I think this is such an important issue uh, facing the church, not just in this age, but in every age, the issue of holiness. Because God says something in His Word here that's very, very sobering and should be sobering to us. Without holiness, no one shall see the Lord. And if that doesn't sober you, then you can't be sobered, I don't think. Uh, so we're going to spend a couple of weeks on this, unpacking these, these few verses a lot in here. So we want to take our time. So let us hear now the Word of the Lord. Let's stand and honor the reading of God's Word. I'm going to read verses, uh, I'm going to read verses 1 and 2 to kind of set the context here, and then I'm going to jump down to 11 through 17. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. And is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now jump down to verse 12. Sorry, 11 and 12. Therefore, and here's another therefore. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. And make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. And by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears." This is the word of the Lord. May he add his blessing to this reading. You may be seated. Let's pray. Sovereign Lord, what a privilege it is to come before you this morning and to hear your word. So now we pray that you would give me grace as I seek to expound these verses. That God, as your words, you tell us in your word, be ye holy as I am holy. That, Father, we would be holy people. That we would seek to be holy that we would hate every vestige of sin, that we would not rest until every, every part of sin is eradicated from our beings, Lord. As you work to sanctify us and to make us like Jesus, I pray that you would make us more like Jesus today than we've ever been before, than we were yesterday, God, and do the work of sanctification in us just as you have salvation, Lord. And God, if there be one here today who does not know you, they're not sure, Lord, they don't know, if they know you, they don't know if they're in Christ, they've got no confidence that they, heaven would be their home if they were to die today, that you would work in their hearts, that you would convict them of sin, that you would draw them by your spirit, that you would do what you alone can do to bring about the new birth in them, God. They would begin to live a new life, no longer for their own glory, but Lord, for living for your glory. Now, Father, take your word and plant it deep in us now and make us like Jesus for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. On October 25th, 1964, Jim Marshall, 
a Hall of Fame defensive end for the Minnesota Vikings. Many of you, if you're older like me, you know he was part of the Purple People Eaters, one of the great defenses in NFL history. Jim Marshall did something that was both remarkable and unthinkable. Jim Marshall scooped up a fumble. They're playing the 49ers, San Francisco 49ers, boo, right? And uh, they, he picked up a fumble on their 34-yard line and ran 66 yards the wrong way. Ran to the end zone and threw the ball out of the end zone and turned and waited for his teammates to show up to congratulate him for this touchdown when, in fact, it was a safety and two points for the 49ers. Marshall had run the wrong way. He said, and I quote, I'm not very fast, and so I, I thought something was wrong, and I looked around, and there were no players in the opposite team around me. In fact, the first player to greet him was a 49ers player who said, patted him on the helmet and said, thanks, Jim, that really helps us. He said, I knew right then I was in deep trouble. So Jim Marshall covered a fumble, that's good, and ran the wrong way, that is not so good. Well, we're talking about running here. This is why I opened to this illustration. Because these last few weeks we've talked about running, running the race, the race of faith, the race by grace through faith in Christ, right? And so we need to ask ourselves as we work through these verses in chapter 12, and really the, the rest of the book, how are we running the race? How are you running? Which way are you running? Are you daily running toward Jesus? You're running the right way? <laughs> Or are you like Jim Marshall, are you running the wrong way? Are you running away from God? Now, Jim Marshall was just running away from his own teammates who were desperately trying to tackle him, I think. But if you're running the wrong way, running this race the wrong way, you're running some kind of race in life, then you're running from God. Which way is it? What I want us to consider today. Because you're going to get tired in the race. The race of faith. You get tired, you're going to grow weary. And only those who are running toward God and toward Christ will persevere in the race all the way to the end. And I think that's really the point of all these latter chapters and really the whole book. You say, well, good, we can go home now, right? Well, no, no, not so fast. Got a lot of things to work through here. But, but that's it, to, to endure the race. I mean, that's it, right? We're going to look at 12 to 14 today, 14 to 17 next week, because this is, is so, so vital, I think. Of course, you know that this, this audience to which this was written, this sermonic letter, and I think it was a sermon, um, was undergoing great persecution, grinding persecution, and apparently the writer expected it to get worse. They were being persecuted for being Christians in a way that we never have, and we maybe never will. I don't know. Maybe we will. And as I've said before, it might be good for us if we were. I mean, last week we talked about developing what I called a gritty faith, and a gritty faith that not only survives affliction, but thrives in the middle of affliction. Do you have that kind of faith? You know, you don't just survive and go, whew, I'm glad that's over with, which I'm prone to do. But you really thrive in the middle of affliction because you know God is doing a great work in you. He's using it for your good and, and for his glory. A gritty faith that in the midst of it, doesn't whine, or when it's tested, doesn't, as I said last week, doesn't play the victim card, but runs harder, all the harder toward God, all the more harder. That's what I want. When you go through affliction, 
I want you to run not hard from God, but run hard toward God. It's like I tell people in counseling, when you sin, run to Jesus. Satan wants you to run from Jesus, right, but run to Jesus. But we're prone to run from Jesus, right? And it's the same way, I think, in affliction. We get an attitude, maybe even toward God, that we don't have someone else's life, and so we run away from God. Or we stay out of church, or we get cold toward our, our church fellow church members or we just go through the motions or or there's a thousand reactions that we have that are away that drive us away from God and so this week we see three exhortations that the writer I think wants to use to spur them on to the finish to finish the race and here's the first one and it's simply finish the race verses 12 and 13 he says lift your drooping hands strengthen your weak knees talking about a race here right uh, I love this because I get tired just thinking about running a marathon, like I said a couple weeks ago, right? Lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. Okay, so he's resuming this race metaphor from the reason I read 12, 1 and 2, because that's, that's the, the context, the near context. And he gives this fervent exhortation to the congregation, and it's a fervent exhortation to us. The first thing that happens to a runner when he starts to tire, and I know this from having run uh, the 4x400 many, many years ago, right, when I was young and fast or crazy or whatever, the first thing to get tired is your arms droop. Obviously, the rider is aware of this. Your arms begin to droop. And the position, the motion of your arms, that's extremely important. And running to maintain coordination and rhythm in your body. That's how you run the race well, right? By, by doing this. That's why we do this. If you're not doing this, you don't ever see anyone like this. I kind of like to see that. That'd be funny. It's probably a Seinfeld episode or something. But I mean, it, you know, you run, no, you run like this, right? And that's important for balance and, and stamina, rhythm. And your arms get tired. They begin to droop and your knees begin to wobble. And then you're no longer focused on the race. You're focused on your wobbling knees, which is what, precisely what would happen if I ran like a mile today, right? Do walk. We get exercise, but running, not so much anymore. But your knees are wobbling. And the only way you can, can concentrate or continue is by focusing on the goal. And the riders addressing Christians, they're thinking about quitting the race. And maybe that's you today. Maybe you've been through so much hardship, and we've had a, we've had a rough few months for sure in this country and globally. And maybe you think it's just not worth it. I'm just going to quit we saw, we've seen in the last few weeks, Christians, well-known Christians who've quit the race, right? Just almost out of the blue. And, of course, it wasn't out of the blue. We know that was a long time. It didn't happen overnight, right? We've talked about that. They apostatized because it happened over time. They were running away from Jesus instead of running to him. But they quit the race. We've, again, deconversion stories. That's kind of in vogue now, which, uh, which uh, is sad but true. We do it on social media. But that's who the writer's addressing here. He's exhorting them to endure the race by pointing them to Jesus. And that's who we've treated our eyes on, not just this Sunday, not just in Hebrews, but every Sunday, right? That's why we're here. A very limited reason why we're here. To worship Jesus, to preach Jesus, right? Because only Jesus can do helpless sinners good. But he says you to lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. I mean, he wants us to show determination, our struggle and our fatigue, and understanding that the purpose of our trials, the purpose of the fatigue is for our good, for our endurance, actually, and for God's glory, for the strengthening of our faith, to, for proving that God is faithful. I mean, anybody can be a Christian when the sun is shining in our lives, right? That's easy, right? If the prosperity gospel were true, well, that would be easy. I mean, any fool would sign up for that, right? Give me health and wealth. 
If I'm truly godly, well, yeah, that's a Christianity that, yeah, we can, we can sign up for that. Of course, that's a uniquely American brand of Christianity. We know that's false. You all know that. We don't need to spend any time on that. But we're going to droop. Our, our, our knees are going to get weak. I know mine have. Yours will. Even if you're in the ministry, not in the ministry, you're just a, a lay person, doesn't matter. Christians, you're going to get tired in the race. And you're going to get tired maybe of the race. And Satan's going to tempt you. And your flesh is going to tempt you. That's how deconversion stories begin, right? They begin with, if James 1 is right, they begin by, with a temptation. And, of course, you learned last week that some of this is discipline for the purpose of what? Because God's angry with us and he has an attitude problem? God, you know, he's really an angry deity? Well, no, no, no. Not this angry, bloodthirsty deity that liberal, theological liberalism makes him out to be. No, he's disciplining us for our good, for our endurance, right? He, just like we love our kids and discipline them, he disciplines us so we will endure in the race. We'll bear fruit, the fruit of righteousness, holiness. And really, that's what we're after. Salvation and holiness, that's it. Those are our two goals here at Christ Fellowship Baptist Church. And I think every faithful biblical church that preaches God's word is really just salvation of souls and the sanctification, the, 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 the finding of the lost and the sanctification of the found. That's really it. That's our whole mission. Of course, that includes truth and life and mission, all the things that we, we unpack every once in a while for you all here. But we get tired. Verse 12 here by, he borrows from Isaiah 35, 3. This is strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. And then Isaiah goes on to say, Say to those who have an anxious heart, again, maybe you've been made very anxious by the events of the past year, and that's understandable. I mean, I've, I've felt myself being anxious sometimes too. But he says, Say to those who have an anxious heart, so we're saying this to you and to me now, the God's word is, Be strong and fear not. Be strong and fear not. Behold, your God will come. He will come and save you. Your salvation, you've not been dropped off in this fallen world and you're just left on your own devices. Right? To do it, you're saved by grace and now you're going to stay saved by your own effort. That would be cruel indeed. Both salvation and sanctification are by grace alone. We'll get to that here in just a few moments. Because this can sound like works righteousness if we're not careful. I mean, the Christian life is difficult. But we must also be like the marathon runner and, and have the finish line in mind. What the writer of Isaiah says, that he's going to come again. It may not look like it. We, look at, you know, we can look at circumstances in our country, for example, and how you know, it is more difficult maybe to be a Christian, maybe get more difficult think, well, God has just forgotten about us. I mean, think about the intertestamental period, the 400 years of absolute silence between the Old Testament and New Testament, between Malachi and Matthew 1. 400 years. I mean, sometimes it can feel that way to us, can it? Well, God just kind of dropped us off. We've got to do this on effort. No, no, no. He has not left you nor forsaken you. He will come again. He will come to save you finally and fully. And like runners who see the finish line ahead, at least in their minds even, we're to take heart, he says, lifting up our arms and run the race all the way to the end, even when we're tired and bruised and battered and we feel like quitting. Christian life's hard. No one said, you know, the old 70s song, I never promised you a rose garden. That could almost be like a hymn for today, couldn't it? But God doesn't promise us that. He says, so lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees. That's going to be the first thing to fall when you're tired. Spiritually, that's true, right? We just let our guard down. We don't, the Bible, we don't have our quiet time anymore. Maybe we don't really need to memorize scripture anymore. We don't really, we'll just, just go to church. 
and we'll sit there and think about, you know, lunch or something like that, or, you know, uh, Jim Marshall's Wrong Way Run. Maybe you'll go, that is on YouTube. Please don't look at it. Or look at it again. Oh, it's quite good. He throws the ball in the end zone. It's really cool. And uh, they'll take my word for it for now. But we have all these distractions, right? We talked about distractions a few weeks ago. And then he says, make straight paths for your feet in verse 13. This echoes Proverbs 26 and 27, which I'll quote in a moment. It tells us to make, make a level path, not swerving to the right nor to the left. And so we're reminded of the Lord's teaching about the, the broad road that leads to destruction and the narrow path that leads to life. And I've said all along, that's kind of in the background here, right? Are you, which road are you on? Are you on the narrow path that leads to life or are you on the broad road that leads to destruction? Make straight paths for your feet. Stay in your own lane. I think that's literally what he's saying here. You're, you're, you're making a straight path. You're not running hither and yon. You're not taking a, uh, you know, some kind of detour like the, some of the characters in Pilgrim's Progress did. No, no, no. You're staying in your lane. You're running straight Running on the straight and the narrow, the, the king's highway. Uh, when, you, when you get out of your lane, you not only disqualify yourself, but you often interfere with other runners. Remember when I ran that last leg of the 4x400, man, I was looking at those lines and I was not, I didn't want to bump into people. I kind of wanted to, to, you know, to make, so they wouldn't outrun me, but you would be disqualified. And all that running for disqualification, you know, that seemed like uh, something that wasn't very smart to me. But we don't get out of our own lane. Um, we focus on the goal. We don't let fatigue rob us of the will to win, in this case, to, to receive the crown of life. When we set out in the race of faith, nothing should cause us to waver or change course. If we do, we'll only stumble ourselves and we'll cause others to stumble as well. We run, we leave the track behind us, we'll either lead, either lead or mislead others. We're running, we're running in front, and they'll follow us, and they'll follow us either to eternal life or to destruction. I mean, I wonder how many, how many people these deconstruction stories have influenced. I know John Piper's son, pray for Abraham Piper, who's now very, very publicly repudiated his faith and is repudiating it daily on social media. And he has like a million followers. And you read the comments, and it's like, good going, Abraham. I grew up in a church, and I feel the same way you do. I feel like it's just a narrow-minded, bigoted religion, bad news, and all, all the rest. And maybe the devil's whispered that in your ear. I mean, I've heard that. You've probably heard that. So this is just too hard. And it makes you a bad guy all the time. One deconstruction story from a couple weeks back was that. I was tired of being a bad guy. Really? Tired of being a bad guy. But sometimes you get tired of being a bad guy, don't you? Or what you think, what the world tells you is a bad because you're telling you're talking about sin and death and salvation and eternal things. Beloved, keep your eyes on Jesus. Don't be, don't be, don't be, uh, don't, don't take a detour down that path. That's what he's saying. Make a straight path to your feet. That's why we have to stick to the word. We take great pains to make certain the track we leave behind is straight. We must live the right way and run the right course. Not the wrong way like Jim Marshall. Proverbs 4, 25 to 27, let your eyes look directly ahead and let your gaze be, be fixed straight in front of you. Watch the path of your feet and all your ways will be established. And he says this, he says, do not turn to your right nor to your left. Turn your foot from evil. How do you do this? It's very simple. Keep your eyes on Jesus and all the means of grace that he's ordained for keeping your eyes focused on him. Pastor Doug loves to say, this ain't complicated, right? This ain't rocket science. And I love that. Because if it were rocket science, I wouldn't be doing it, right? <laughs> the Christian life is, it's hard, but it's not hard to understand. 
Let your eyes look directly ahead. Let it look, let, look to Jesus. So what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. Lame here in verse 13, the second part of 13, is weak, limping Christians who may easily be tripped up or misled. And when you're weak, that's when you're vulnerable, right? When you're, you're doubting, that's when you're vulnerable. Under the pressure of persecution, I think these Jewish Christians here we're beginning to doubt the gospel and weaken their commitment, doubt the goodness of God. And that's really where it starts, doesn't it? We doubt, how could God allow evil in this world? So we start to doubt his goodness. Instead of really thinking, working through it biblically and unpacking all that and what it means, we just say, well, I'll never serve a God like that. I've heard that over and over and over and over the last 10 years. I would never serve a God like that, like the one you preach. Wow. And if it weren't for God's grace, I wouldn't be serving him either. So we, let's be honest, we're here by God's grace. We're kept by God's grace, right? We're running the race only because he's giving us the strength to do it. And this writer here, he's seeking for them to endure, to be healed, by which he means to be, uh, not, not to be put out of joint or dislocated spiritually. I think in the end, if you dislocated your knee, you couldn't run the race, right? It would put you out forever. I think that's what's in view here, to be, to be disqualified. God forbid anyone sit under the preaching of this church Sunday after Sunday, week after week, year after year, and then be disqualified in the end. And that, that is our greatest fear as elders. We don't want that to happen to any of you. We want you to run the race all the way to the end. That's why we just preach the word and do very simple things. We're not going to be distracted. We could do a lot of things, right? We could. Especially when we get to the new building. Lots of things we could do. But really, we're going to keep it pretty simple. We're going to keep doing the same things we're doing now right? What we're called to do. Because that's what you need. It's what I need. We're going to keep our eyes on Jesus, right? We could, man, there's lots of things we could do. You know, we got a permanent location. And we will do some, some new things. They're old things, but they're new things and things we can do simply because of it. But they're just the, they're the service of this very thing here. Because this is all we got. And, and this is all we need. You don't have to be clever to be in ministry. Like I said, or I wouldn't be in ministry, right? So we don't we become dislocated. So how do we run with endurance? Well, he gives us two commands. Those are my other two points here. Two commands he gives that are part of our perseverance. They point to what Jesus called, I think, the greatest, the great commandments. Love the Lord your God, the all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. I think these are a summary of those two things. And the first one's this, and I'm summarizing it this way. Excuse me. Love your neighbor. Love your neighbor. And he says this by saying, pursue peace with everyone. Pursue peace with everyone. This, uh, this is a relevant message for every age, isn't it? Especially our age. How much peace is there in our society now? Well, very little. Or maybe none. How much peace is there in our denomination right now? Well, very little and maybe none. We'll see in Nashville in June, I suppose. But Scripture says pursue peace with everyone, Right? Yet we seem to be at war with, with everyone who's not like us or doesn't agree with every jot and tittle of our, our doctrine or our application or whatever. But this is the command. He gives this. Why? Because our tendency when we are mistreated is to do what? To say, you're wonderful in every way. You're godly and I know you mean well. And I just, I don't mind that you have just completely insulted me. I think it's wonderful. And you're great. And to God be the glory. Is that what we do when we're mistreated? Well, I don't know what you do, but I begin to plot revenge. You know, paybacks are, well, you know what they say about that. 
My kids hear this all the time. Would you paybacks? Well, you know, especially as they get older and we can tease each other. The paybacks. We, we do, don't we? Even the baby, we'll think about, I want to, I'll get him back. I remember baseball, my high school baseball. This, I had an incident with a, a player from one of our rival schools, and it, it took me two years to finally get him back. I threw a ball up the first baseline, a ground ball to me, and he knocked him down and just loved every minute of it. Took me two years, but I never forgot. And that wasn't godly. Don't do that, okay? If you're playing baseball, don't, don't do that. I did that. But I waited because that's what we want, right? We've been, we've been shamed. And I, in this particular instance, he had shamed me. He was a much better player than I was, and I didn't like that to begin with. And so some jealousy and stuff. But that's what we do in the church, don't we? think, I'll get them back. And that's why he's saying pursue peace with everyone. Because we want revenge. But look what Peter says in 1 Peter 2.21. We've reduced this down to just a, a bracelet, I'm afraid. And that's all well and good. But listen to what it says. Christ also suffered for you, leaving an, you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Now, that's the, the, the bracelet, right? What would Jesus do? And that's all well and good. Let's put this on a bracelet. When he was reviled, let's flip it over and it will say this, okay? When, it was revi- when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. He didn't throw up the first baseline and try to knock the guy down. Right? He didn't do that. He was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly, 1 Peter 21 and 23. So Jesus was brutally treated. The worst instance of injustice in world history because the sinless Savior died, right? It was the just dying for the unjust. That's unjust. You want injustice? There it is. And yet what did he do? He said, I'm going to get him back. And we died in our place. We were his enemies, he made us his friends. You know, we sing that song. Once your enemies, now seated at his table. That's who you were, and that's who I am. We have to keep that in mind, that we were once his enemies. It's about our deconversion. Keep this in mind, Mr. Deconversion. You were once his enemy, and rightly so, now you're seated at his table. Who would want to deconvert from that? Now seated at the maker of the universe's table. Like Mephibosheth in the Old Testament, David, right? He didn't have any uh, calls to be there, but by the grace of David, the grace of God, that's who we are. We're seated at his table. So we run the race by loving our neighbor, pursuing peace. Because when we do so, no matter the circumstances, we're being like Christ, who was what? The prince of? Tell me. Prince of peace. That's good. Fairly vigorous for 30 or so minutes into the sermon. The prince of peace. That's who we're to be like, the prince of peace. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. He could have called down. He could have just vaporized them. And if I were God, I would have vaporized them, right? The first time they drove, drove the nail, vaporized. Because that would have been fun because I'm a sinner, right? And so were you. But he reviled not in return. But kept entrusting himself to God who judges justly. That judgment on the last day is going to be perfect. All the injustices will be undone. I promise you. Because the Word promises us that. Not in this life, but in the next Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 9, But blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. You say, you know what? That's really good, preacher. And I agree with that. And that sounds great. But I've tried to be reconciled to so-and-so, but they won't be reconciled to me. They just won't even, they won't even talk to me. Well, there's a theology for that, and that's a good thing. Romans 12, 18, Paul says, If possible, now listen to how he couches his language here. If possible... So far as it depends on you, live peacefully with all. In other words, you've got to always be willing to live at peace with people, always willing to forgive the person who's wronged you. 
Always, always are. That's to be your posture. Always willing to forgive. Live peaceably with all. If, as far as it depends on you, though, because you can't make the other person repent. You can't grant them repentance. That's God's prerogative. You can't reconcile yourself to, to them uh, perfectly, right? You can't guarantee that it will be reconciled. Because peace is a two-way street. It's not possible for two persons or two nations to live at peace with each other if one of them is persistently belligerent. You may have been that person if you are, repent. Or you may have, have experienced or been experienced in that with someone you're trying to reconcile with now. I mean, Jesus was peaceful toward all men, but all men were not peaceful toward him. We're only responsible for our side of the peace process. That's what Paul's saying here. We cannot use another person's belligerence as an excuse for responding in kind, like I did in, in baseball. And that's a silly example, but I mean, I've done way worse things than that in much more serious circumstances than that to pay somebody back for some way they've wronged me and been unjust toward me. We have an obligation, according to Scripture, to live peaceably, whether or not those around us treat us peaceably. They don't live peaceably, that's their problem, but it can never be our excuse. There was a man I worked in ministry with years ago, and we were not at peace with each other when I left that venue of ministry at all. And I pursued peace with him, and I did not get it for a long time. And he went home to be the Lord last year, but before that happened, praise God, we had a long, long talk and made everything right. We'd both been praying for it. We both, there are reasons why we weren't able to make peace. But God enabled us to lay those things aside, and after a long time... In a very awkward process at places, God made it right. And that may not happen to you. There's no guarantee, right? But you, that must be your posture. Always, we need to be always willing to do everything we can to make it right with people whom we, we have wronged. And always be willing to forgive and make peace and be reconciled with those who've wronged us. But it's conditional. And this is where the church gets it so wrong, where we have more in common, I think, with therapy than we do with Scripture. You say, I just, I forgive you. And that's great. But we can't forgive someone who doesn't want to be forgiven. Jesus said this in Luke 17, 3 and 4. Pay attention to yourselves if your brother, now listen to the conditional clauses here. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, now there it is. There's a conditional clause. If he repents, forgive him. And if he sins grievous against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent... You must forgive him. There's the obligation, but the other person needs to repent. There's this whole teaching, and I don't think it's, it's grossly unbiblical. Again, it comes from, arises out of therapy that, you know, you did these horrible things to my whole family, I forgive you. No, I'm willing to forgive you. Because of all the, the, the massive debt that I owed and can never pay and be forgiven, I'm willing, because of the cross of Christ, to forgive you. But reconciliation only takes place in this man when there was repentance. And we both needed to repent, and by God's grace, we did. But until then, we could say, oh, I forgive him. Well, that, that doesn't reconcile the parties. And that's another sermon for another time. But we've got to be willing, willing always, always, always to, to grant forgiveness and to be reconciled. In fact, we ought to strive for peace and pursue it. That's the first command. Second command, love to God. So that's love to neighbor, love God. Pursue holiness on that which no one will see God. <clears throat> We're going to get two weeks on this because I think it's that important. <clears throat> Excuse me. It's very sobering. 
If you're going to memorize a verse this week, memorize this one. Very, very easy. Pursue peace and holiness. And here's the sobering part. Without which, no one will see the Lord. What does he mean? Well, first there's an imperative. Pursue. Pursue peace and pursue holiness. Of course, this is tied to discipline. Back in, remember, verses 10 and 11. It says he's disciplining you like a good father for, for your good. And so uh, the, this, this, all, all this is tied to that as well. But the serving part is without which no one will see God. And I think we can take that in two senses. One, and here's the sobering part for us. Without sanctification, you will not go to heaven. You say, well, that's crazy. The Reformation teaches salvation by grace alone. And, that, and we believe that here. Exactly. And we'll get to that. I think it means that in that sense, without sanctification, no one will go to heaven. Secondly, without godly living by Christians, unbelievers will not see God and be pointed to Christ by your example. So there's that twofold, right? There's that twofold love toward God and love toward neighbor and the way you live your lives. As I've asked you many times, if it were illegal to be a Christian, would you be arrested? Would you be indicted? Would you be found guilty before the bar of man? Because you're a Christian, and it's clear. Pursue holiness, without which no one will see God. Now this first sense... I want to be clear, he is not speaking of the imputed righteousness, pursuing holiness, not speaking of the imputed righteousness which you must have to get into heaven, but holiness in the sense of humble, godly, servant-hearted, salty, light-filled lives. That's what he's talking about. That ought to be, on some level, the personality, both internally and externally, of every follower of Jesus Christ. And again, on some level, we're all at different levels here of our sanctification. Right? Some of us are more mature, some of us are less mature, some of us have struggles that others don't have. You know, this is, uh, I'm not saying be perfect. If you're not like me, then you won't see heaven. No, no. Pursue holiness. What is holiness? Well, I, I love J.C. Ryle. Uh, we get, always go back to him, but I, he says it better than I can, him and Spurgeon. So, Forgive me if this is too many, but he says, Holiness is the habit of being of one mind with God, according as we find his mind described in Scripture. It is the habit of agreeing with God's judgment. And here's the part you can memorize almost with me saying it. Hating what God hates, loving what God loves, <clears throat> and measuring everything in this world by the standard of his word. <clears throat> Excuse me. Still battling allergies. Forgive me. So you're loving what he loves and you're hating what he hates. And you're measuring everything by the standard of his word. That's holiness. That's, that's pursuing holiness. That's how we do it. And I, I pray almost every day of my life, enable me, God, to hate what you hate and love what you love. And only let the thing that makes you angry make me angry. <laughs> Things like that. I, that's why I love Ryle's definition. I think that's a biblical definition. So holiness is displaying love to God and love to neighbor in all of our relationships, in all of our words, all of our attitudes, all of our thoughts, and all of our actions. It's a summary of the law in Mark 12, 30, and 31 other places. The first great commandment, love the Lord your God, that all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Second commandment, like it, love your neighbor as yourself. That's it. That's it. Or to pursue that. Every single day of our lives, 
24 hours a day, seven days a week. And if you're pursuing that, and if you're pursuing it imperfectly, even very imperfectly, and, and I am, and I have, <clears throat> that means you're a Christian. You're not saying, well, if you have this, this level of piety, you know, <clears throat> you've been to church every Sunday, but one this, church, this uh, year, read your Bible every day, you've done this, you've checked all these boxes, that's not what I'm talking about. Although that, those things can be important means toward this, <clears throat> this is not about checking boxes. That's not sanctification, right? No, not at all. No, it's not, not legalism. Pursuing holiness, being like Jesus, being like Christ, I mean, who gave those commandments, right? That's what we're pursuing, like Jesus. How should we pursue it? Well, with all our hearts. Paul in Philippians 3, 12 to 14, and I've quoted this a couple weeks ago, but this is so important in, in, in establishing this doctrine. What he says, not that I've already obtained it, or already been made perfect. So he's saying, I'm not perfect. And so I want you to hear that. I'm not perfect, and you're not perfect. That's not what I'm saying. But he says, not having already not been made perfect, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of me, which is holiness. He took hold of you so you would be made like Jesus. That's what he took hold of you for. He saved you, and now he is sanctifying you so you would be like Jesus. And Paul goes on to say, brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. He's humble. And that's where we are right here. We've not taken hold of it fully, for sure. But one thing I do. Here's the one thing he does. He boils it down to the one thing. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to that runner's lean to what lies ahead. He says, I press on toward the goal to win the prize, the upper call of God in Christ Jesus. He is seeking he is an all-out pursuit, a race to obtain the resurrection of the dead on the last day. And that's what you're here for. The crown of life. Is that your most fundamental pursuit in life? Are you pursuing the crown of life? Or are you pursuing something else? Are you running like Jim Marshall the wrong way? <laughs> are you running to Jesus, running with Jesus, with God in his word? Because the opposite of holiness is worldliness. This helps us establish the, the definition. First John 2, 15 to 17. Very well-known passage. Love not the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Boy, that's scary, isn't it? There's a lot to love about this world. God's made this world. There's a lot to love about it. But he says, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of possessions, is not from the Father, but is from the world. See, worldliness, as Paul puts it in Romans 12, is when we're being pressed into the world's mold. We're becoming what Spurgeon called a worldling. Being pressed into the world's mold. We're, we're, we love the pride, we have to take pride in our possessions, we, we've Pursue 24-7 the desires of the flesh, which those war with us even as Christians. The desires of the eyes, everything our eyes can see that's beautiful. We want that more than we want God. And so there's not anything wrong with wanting some things. Of course, God's made them, made them good. But are we pursuing those things more than we are pursuing Christ? That's the question we ask ourselves. So what does this look like in the furnace of affliction, a persecution, as the audience of this, uh, was, uh, the, the, the audience of this letter was facing? Well, I think of Cassie Bernal. Some of you may remember. I'm old enough to remember. 1999. I realize I have a very young congregation here, and that was a long time ago to some of you, not so long to me. But in 1999, the Columbine High School shootings in, in Colorado, she was a young girl, 17 years old. She'd become a Christian two years earlier. One of the shooters held his, held his gun to her head and said, Do you believe in God? 
And she said, yes. And he pulled the trigger. And she was in heaven in half a second. Beloved, that's what it looks like. That's what it looks like. When it hits the fan, when you're tested, that's what it looks like. She did not deny God. Her mother said later, she said, she wrote this, said, the real issue raised by Cassie's death is not what she said to her killers, but what it was that enabled her to face them as she did. And she said this, Cassie didn't just die on April the 20th. She died daily over the previous two years. And see, if you're not walking with God and this is not your, your affections of not going hard after this daily, then when it comes, when the time comes when you are asked to deny the faith, you might. And I might. If we're not walking with Him. You might just say, I don't believe in God. And I'll get forgiveness later because that's His job to forgive. And that's fine. I'll grace and, and we'll live to play another day. But I have so much respect for her and love that story so much because she didn't. And she knew, surely knew what was coming because a lot of other students were dead already. That was one of the first awful, awful, terrible shootings in, in, this, in, in, in this country's history. But what a gracious, what a glorious story to come out of that, right? That's holiness. Death to self. What her mother says is true. When you come to Christ, you're, you're, you're raised in him. Death is dead. Love is one. You, you've died. The old self has died, and you've been raised to walk in newness of life. That's it. That's what it means to be holy. Are you walking in the newness of life? I mean, Cassie Bernal, she'd learned to think differently from the other kids at school. She wasn't, didn't think in terms of popularity, according to her mom, or image, or, or, or to put herself first. But she was called to live out her love for God and His people, to think about how God would have her act in various situations. And when it came to that moment, she gave the right answer. And when that right answer got into heaven, it was the heart behind it. A heart that had been changed, because only a heart that had been changed could say that, right? Knowing it's about to die. That's what's striving for holiness. You say, well, that's great, but isn't this works righteous? And you said to get to that. Well, I'll get to that. Because this verse, I think, has caused many Christians much consternation, caused them to lose sleep because they see it as an inference that salvation is a result from our moral attainment. That's a, a false gospel that many of us uh, can flirt with, even just almost passively, Right? It's not our morality that gets us into heaven. That's not the way we should think of verse 14. We're not saved by our works, all of which are tainted by sin, and that are thus unacceptable to God. Even our, our best day, our righteousness is as filthy rags, Scripture says. No, we're saved by the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that is central to the gospel. You, you take out the imputed righteousness of Christ, you lose the gospel, right? In justification by faith, you lose it. <clears throat> So if we make the central point of verse 14 that we're saved by our works, our own effort, then that can only lead to despair. You know it probably, and I know it. I went through a time in my life, I rededicated my life like 447 times, thinking that's all I needed to do it, just do it again. I rededicated, I'm doing it, trying harder. And then I encountered the gospel grace that liberated me from all that. And, and it, it enabled me actually to pursue holiness <laughs> in a way that the other thing could not. That, was a spec that project was a spectacular failure. Am I trying to treasure up my righteousness to go to heaven? Not going to work. And it wore me out. I had been taught some really bad theology about that. I mean, to be clear, the ground of our salvation is justification by faith alone and the death and resurrection of Christ alone. I mean, Paul said, by no works of the flesh shall any man be justified. But this is a very serious admonition nonetheless, brothers and sisters. Pursue holiness without which no one shall see 
God. I want the force of that to land on you. No one will see God. I can wear the name, but I don't need to be changed. No. You have the profession, maybe, but do you have the possession of Christ? You've made the profession, and maybe for lots of bad reasons, but do you have the possession? Do you possess Christ? Does he possess you? And the answer to that question is uh, the, the difference between heaven and hell, all of eternity, hangs in the balance on that simple question. And Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. But I thought you just had to go to the altar and, you know, sign a card or shake the preacher's hand. You're saved, right? I made a decision for Christ. That will never save you. It will deceive you, but it won't save you. You may have done your business. I love it. You've done my business with God. <laughs> As if you, I, I set the terms and I've got a business and I've got a contract and here you go, God. You sign. You do your thing. I'll do my thing. We'll all be happy. Well, that won't turn out to be very happy. It's not anything you do. But it's serious. You must pursue holiness. You see, it's, a, it's God's sovereignty and man's responsibility coming together all through the Bible. Colossians 1, 21 to 23, Paul said this, And you who are once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, this is who you used to be, <clears throat> Christ is now reconciled in his body, a flesh by his death, in order that, in order, and here it is, to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Yes, he deposits his righteousness to you, and that does make you holy and righteous, but also he says this, if, indeed, you continue in the faith. I'll present you holy and righteous for God, God's sovereign, if, indeed, you continue in the faith. Maybe you're on the verge of deconversion. I would, I would admonish you lovingly. Flee to Christ. Look to Christ. Don't take your eyes off him. Where are you going to go for salvation? I mean, the, the disciples said, you alone, Jesus. Where else are you going to go? He said, well, nowhere but to you. But to you. If indeed you continue the faith stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. If. That's one of the most important words in all the Bible. If. You continue in the faith. There is a race to be run. It's a race of faith, a race of holiness. Pursuing peace with everyone and holiness that which no one will see God. Are you pursuing those things today? Is there fruit in your life? I mean, no fruit. I think to summarize it this way, another way, no fruit, no heaven. You just made a decision. You walked the aisle. You did your business or whatever you think you did. And there's no fruit. There's never been any fruit. I, don't, I mean, there will be really, really weak fruit. I, I'm not talking about the strength or the, the maturity of the fruit or the brightness of your fruit or the, the taste of the fruit. Is there fruit? Is there a desire for fruit? I think that's the question. Do you desire to be like Jesus? And you say, I'm just doing it so imperfectly. Well, join the club. Christ Fellowship Baptist Church, that's what we're about here. We're imperfect people serving a perfect God. That's why we come here every Sunday for His grace and for His mercy. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel which you heard. Are you looking somewhere else? You're looking to friendships, marriages, relationships, boyfriend, girlfriend. You're looking for promotions at work or success in school or athletics or whatever else. No. Jesus said, the one who endures to the end will be saved. Matthew 24, 13. You've got to run the race. 
and no one will see God in the second sense. If you don't live the salty lives of Christ, exalting lights, then non-believers may never see God. You may be the only Jesus your neighbors, your lost friends and loved ones and neighbors and co-workers ever see. And what does he think about your Jesus? What does she think about your Jesus? They think your Jesus is just someone who's all right with sin and all right. You just come to Jesus, you can live just like you used to. It's fine. It's no problem. Is this Jesus is still all right with me. Is that your Jesus? No, the Jesus of Scripture is holy. The God of Scripture is holy and righteous and just. We'll get into this more next week. He is holy. He says, be ye holy for I am holiness. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. I'll close with this quote from Ryle. He says this, Holiness will fit us for heaven. We must be holy because that holiness on earth, we shall never be prepared to enjoy heaven. Now, there are some people you know, they would, never, they would not enjoy heaven, right? Suppose for a moment that you were allowed to enter heaven without holiness. <clears throat> what would you do? What possible enjoyment could you feel there? To which of all the saints would you join yourself? And by whose side would you sit down? Their pleasures are not your pleasures. Their tastes are not your tastes. Their character is not your character. How could you possibly be happy if you had not been holy on earth? It seems clear to me that heaven would be a miserable place to an unholy man. Many people say, in a vague way, they hope to go to heaven. But they do not consider what they say. To reach the holiday of glory, I love that. The holiday of glory, man, I love that. We must pass through the training school of grace. Are you in the training school of grace? Are you on the holiday? Are you pursuing the holiday of glory? We must be heavenly minded and have heavenly tastes in the life that now is, or else we shall never find ourselves in heaven in the life to come. And I could never say that better myself as a place for us to land. Jim Marshall ran the wrong way. And it didn't matter because it was just a football game. Probably mattered to the Vikings. They won, by the way. But which way are you running? Because that matters ultimately. Toward holiness or away from it? Are you a Christian in name only? Are you an almost Christian? To use a phrase that Tom Schreiner used this week that I love, are you an almost Christian? One almost Christian is a 100% non-Christian. Pursue peace. Love God. Love your neighbor. Pursue holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we know as we come to you, and as we, even as we hear this, we cannot do this. These things are too great for us, they're too strong, and we're too weak, and we're, we love the world far too much. Oh God, wean us from a love of this world and cause us to go hard. Every person in the hearing of my voice to spend every day obsessively going hard after Jesus because only Jesus can do helpless sinners good. Do this in us, God. Do this in us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.